What's really going on in the heads and hearts of the humans around you? I'm Mads Grummet, journalist, entrepreneur and startup investor. And I'm Sabina Reid, psychologist, speaker and media commentator. And this is Human Cogs, a podcast about the universal experiences that really matter and the candid conversations we need to have to share them. If you like Human Cogs, we'd love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. That way we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. You may think you know Shana Blaze as the vivacious and talented interior designer from TV shows such as The Block, Selling Houses Australia, Celebrity Apprentice or Country Home Rescue. What you may not know is that Shana is also a passionate advocate for women and a social justice campaigner for tackling domestic violence. In this conversation, Shana shares some of the challenges she faced in her early years as a single mum with a four and a five-year-old after leaving her first marriage, how she then set her mind and abundant talents to rebuilding her life and a stable future for herself and her children, and where she finds herself now, decades later, continuing to create a legacy using her creative skills and public voice to spearhead meaningful change. Shana has been an unstoppable force in her journey as a talented and passionate artist. Her latest project is as the executive producer of The Fort, a new feature film written and co-directed by her children, Carly and Jess, about one woman's battle to escape her abusive marriage whilst attempting to shelter her son from the realities of domestic violence. Shana describes the power of using the arts to hold a mirror up to domestic violence and to catalyse conversations to bring about much-needed change in our societies and in ourselves. She invites each of us to look into that mirror, confront the realities of abusive behaviour and find the language to move beyond the fear and speak up. Here's our chat with Shana. Shana, many of our listeners will know you, obviously, as the vivacious interior designer who's appeared for decades on Australian TV shows, including Selling Houses Australia, The Block, and more recently, Celebrity Apprentice, which you won, and Country Home Rescue. So tell us a little bit about how the way our home looks impacts the way we feel. The easiest way I explain to people is that imagine you're going into the most luxurious foyer of a hotel because it's elegant, it's out there, and you might be wearing dirty jeans, you might be wearing some runners, and all of a sudden you feel like you want to float in there and you want to stand a bit differently, you want to walk a bit differently. So instantly your surroundings are monitoring how you feel feel about yourself and how you want to feel. And so it's always important that your exterior in the exterior view and the interior view have an alignment. And also, you know, with a lot of clients, you know, I always say, so how do you want to feel in the space? And so the room is not about how it looks because we get so caught up on the visual, we get so caught up on the before and after, and we get so caught up on trends that it doesn't support how we feel. So within six months, people are going, oh, I just had to move this and I've bought this and I've done that. And all of a sudden, people aren't happy in their space. 
And so it's about creating a really permanent basis of you as an individual, as how you as a family, how you want to communicate in the space as the grassroots of your home. And everything else on top of it is just a bit of fun and fluff. But it's all about how you want to feel in the space, whether you want to feel enlightened, whether you want to feel calm when you come home, whether you want to feel um, connected, whether you just want to just feel exuberant or you want to actually have like a, a place that's all about conversation or a place to just disappear. They're the important parts where you connect your space and also it reflects how you're going to feel and you're going to be a better person because of it. And could it be that in our home environments you can have many different places in there where you create different ways to feel oh god absolutely how boring would that be when and and that's the thing I look at people's befores and afters and it's like oh every room is vanilla and it doesn't have to be vanilla in the fact that it is one color it just means it's the same skate all the way through and you know parents say to me oh my god I've got my 12 year old daughter she wants to do this 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 and this and you know wants to paint the walls black and the ceiling purple and I go well why won't you like it's expression. You close the door, that's their room. And I always say, as long as they do it, as long as they paint it, as long as they pick it, as long as they save the money to buy the paint, to buy the wallpaper so that they learn about owning their expression. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, my parents did that for me um, unconsciously in the fact that we had no money. Uh, my dad was a creative. He didn't do it as a living. And there was permission to just be yourself in a very subtle way. So I was allowed to experiment as a really young girl, you know, my early teens, even before I was a teen. You know, I painted designs on the wall with Dad. We, um, I asked Dad to rip up all the carpet. I put tinfoil on the walls, paste all over it. Like I ruined the walls. I was freezing. Can you imagine tinfoil on the walls and no carpet? I literally laid there shaking but I really loved it so did you have to wear like anti-glare sunglasses or something in that room no no because it was actually the coldest space in the house so it had no not a lot of light so thinking about your design sensibility then it sounds like you were given space to be really experimental um one of the things that where we saw that big shift toward minimalism and gray on gray in interiors with not just a lot of blah really um is one of the things that that I find when I go into homes is I want to know the story of the people who live there and, and the role of provenance in the objects that we surround ourselves with. For you, what's an object or something that has carried with you through all your design phases? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I think the thing that's carried through is um, frames and family photos that go, you know, I've even got frames from when I had my first house. And it's that sort of thing, like objects are objects, but it's the meaning and the personality that goes with it. One thing I do have is my dad bought me uh, a teapot when I left because we were a tea family and he was at St Kilda Market and it was the height of sort of like the 80s of like really revolting colours that just didn't work together. And he bought me that teapot as my first um, teapot when I moved out of home. And as ugly as it is, I've still got it because that's my first teapot. That was the first thing I was given into my new space. And actually, no, it wasn't even my own home. I was sharing with like four other girls. So it was a madhouse. Um, And don't think everyone really drank tea. But anyway, we'll pretend we drank tea. Oh, you, you could you could hide whiskey in those teacups, I'm sure. <laughs> but it is. It's, it's what you're saying. It's the stories behind it, the things that you carry through. 
there's a lot of prints that I had that faded over time. I loved them. Um, my auntie painted a picture when my um, daughter was born that sort of doesn't work in any of my interiors, but it sits under the stairs because it means so much. Mm. Um, there's all those sorts of part, sorts of things. You know, there's a couple of chairs that I've carried through. They've been reupholstered a couple of times. And as you get older, you learn the adage of pay a little bit more so it lasts, so you can hang on to it. You know, a lot of the time you'll get things and they just fall apart and it's not about them being dated, they're just crap really. Mm. So, you know, about investing in pieces, investing in rugs, investing in art, investing in a couch that is going to come with you. Mm. Some very good practical tips there for those who are interested in uh, creating a home that feels like it's an expression of who they are. And talking about expression, Shana, I, I have heard that you wanted to be a actor when you were younger and you definitely have performance running through your blood and you <laughs> spent years as a singer, didn't you, actually earning a living being a singer. So what does performing, how does performing make you feel and, and how do you think it's met your needs over the years? Yeah, I, you know, I hadn't really thought about how it's met my needs. I think... I, I look at myself as an artist as a whole. So, it, you know, design is definitely expression when I'm allowed to, where I call it going down the rabbit hole. You go to so so many far-flung places to bring it back. Um, performing, especially music, like acting, straight acting, terrible, got, got knocked out of me really quickly. But um, performing in musicals, I, I could do. And that was really extraordinary because I remember one of my first performances, I had girlfriends that were literally arm's length away from me because it was a small theatre and that was so confronting because they're looking at me as though to say, oh, my God, I want to laugh and I can't turn away and they didn't know what to do. And I had to sing to them straight to their face. So what it's given me is that sense of it's okay to be me and I am very happy and comfortable being me. And the expression of singing and moving is not about copying someone else's song, which is, you know, what you do when you do covers. It is about what are you going to bring to the table? And can I just tell you, for me, it's a sense of joy. Mm. I have so much joy performing. And when I stopped singing for a while, um, I went back into design because I just wasn't making the money to support the family. And so when I went back into design, I had to, I couldn't, there was no music in the house because it hurt too much not to perform. It hurt not to play. So I pretty much extracted music from my life for a long time. And I didn't realise how much joy I lost by doing that. Mm. So when I said to you, what, how has it met your needs? And you said, I don't know how it's met my needs, but you've just answered that. It's your need for joy, your yeah. need for expression, but it sounds like joy. And I think that's the thing, like so many people say they sing in the shower, in the car, because they don't want to be criticised for how they sing or what they do. And, you know, people, I don't know, can't do it these days, but, you know, um, people tend to sort of like yell and sing and scream in their cars, but people, I just don't see people doing that anymore. I remember, you know, 20 years ago, you'd be driving around and people would be singing at the top of their voices. And if someone caught them, they couldn't care less. As I feel like people catch themselves a little bit too much now. Mm. And I, I can't say I've seen anybody singing their heart out um, with their windows up or down. People play the music, but they're not singing their heart out. Maybe they're doing it on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty, plenty of singing the heart out that goes on on there. So 
you, you said you're an artist as a whole and um, so, so music and performing and all that. Where does your abundant confidence come from? Um, I haven't always had it, but I think I think it does come from what I was saying earlier that um, when we were young, we were allowed to just be us. And, you know, I didn't come from a, a musical family, an artistic family as, you know, career-wise, but, you know, my mum would, like, vacuum around the house and just fling down the vacuum at any time and just break out into Shirley Bassey. And, you know, when it was uh, Christmas Day, I had a, quite a funny family and one of the biggest things was Rocky Horror Show. And, you know, I have great memories of my uncle putting on his wife's underwear and bra and coming out and singing street, Sweet Transvestite. And so I grew up with that sort of expression. So there was always permission to make a fool of yourself. Mm. And I think that was something where um, my sense of lack of fear of being judged, you know, it, I don't take it completely to heart. If people are doing it to be nasty, well, that's just a whole different thing. But I don't have a fear of making a fool of myself in that sense because it's it's just a bit of fun and it's a bit of performance. So I think the you play off that energy of um, a lack of fear. Mm. And, and what a gift for your parents to have given you this sense of it's okay to be me, to, to be playful, to take risks, to express. It's easy to say that that's what we give as parents or we hope to give as parents, but for you as an adult to be able to reflect that that's truly what you received from them is... Uh, very powerful and I don't think all so common I would say so um it's beautiful seeing where that where that was born in you um tell us a little bit Shana about yourself as a parent you have two two children and how Mm -hmm. some of the patterns that you've just described how have you instilled some of those in them um what was it like raising raising your children tell us a bit about family life for you um, when when they were really little, that's when I was I was singing. Like I I was doing design, and then when they were when I was pregnant with Carly, um, I was still doing design, but then I was doing singing. So I was doing both. And so when they were little, um, I always had music in the background. Like I was really big on not having the TV on, and it was all about playing songs and music, and then you know putting on. I think you know Play School was a big one, and Wiggles. And, you know, getting out the pots and pans and making sure that they had a toy box of dress-ups. So there was always, you know, I'd go buy stuff of, of, you know, fancy dresses and we'd just put that in and wigs. And, you know, I remember the kids came out and they had, um, I don't know how they grabbed them, but they grabbed um, milk cartons and put them on their feet and did all these sorts of things. So I think the fact that there was always a sense of play, there was always a dress-up box, there was always pots and pans that you could bang, um, and it really wasn't a case do whatever you want, but it was just a, a world of just express yourself, and that's how I wanted to be, um, really wanted to be as a parent. But I still was quite strict because as my parents were absolutely beautiful people, my brother and I always said, oh, we just winged it. You know, we sort of brought ourselves up. So when they were little, I was quite strict. And that was just something about having structure, having um, rules, having, you know, sort of manners. 
my parents did do that. Don't get me wrong. We weren't wildlings. <laughs> but at the same time, it was this guidance on emotions, a guidance of, of what you're doing, so much so that the kids just, you know, said I was a real stickler and I was a bit too strict. But it was more of a case of just understanding kids need that structure. You were a single mum as well for... Tell us about that. What what does that mean to you and how might that have impacted your strictness? So I think um, I broke up with their dad when uh, Carly was five and Jess was four and I literally did everything anyway. So it was just um, a case of rather than sort of trying to fix everything, it was a case of like, okay, this is now just us. And it was simpler because I didn't have another person in the equation. And when you're a single mum, you don't have much money, so you have to be incredibly creative. I wasn't working a lot. I was singing, but I literally was working, you know, earning money week to week. So it was all about being resourceful, creative, and making sure I felt like the kids never missed out on anything. So it was all about friends and friendships and gathering people together making sure that when they went to the movies, we made our own popcorn and we made our own drinks. And so they felt like it was an adventure and they're having a picnic at the movies, Uh, but we just couldn't afford it. So they didn't know that at the time. Mm. (laughs) But it's also a case of I had to be quite strict because it was just me. And if they both got out of hand, how was I going to control it? So it was all about, you know, the nighttime routine, the morning routine, and making sure that there was still all those fun and play times in there. But when the play was finished, it's come up, let's get this happening, let's get this happening, and um, off to bed and structure. Just listening to that, you know, you've come from this creative, uh, experimental, free childhood, a wildling childhood, to to use that word, (laughs) I like that, Um, and yet have come at, you know, for those reasons you've outlined to to parenting with with more structure, with more thought, more intent around putting some rails in there. Um, Mm. And it sounds like there must have been really hard times, a lot of pressure on you actually to show up in those moments um, and, and manage through that. Are you surprised at where you are now? I mean, look at everything you're doing now and where you've landed. Does it surprise you or was that part of the grand plan? You know what? You you have an idea of what you want to do. Um, Where I am and what I'm doing, I can't say was a grand plan. You know, every five years I sort of put something in place of where I want to be and, you know, may not always be about success. It might be about where I want to be. What sort of home do we want? What sort of job? How much do I want to earn? So that was something I I learnt very quickly to to have a major plan for at least a couple of years so that you could get through that because when um you know when I was a single mom it literally I refused to make sure I was living week by week so every every week I would actually have my yearly budget and make sure that I was sticking to the yearly budget and I'd break everything down per cents per this per that it was it was out of necessity and um it wasn't something that I grew up with so I sort of taught myself that part of it one of the things and I, I did a talk I did many a talk many years ago when I was at Foxtel and they just asked me about you know how it, how did I end up in show business and sort of where it took it from and I take it from that growing up in a very simplistic conservative environment it was this free life where you know you'd go outside at you know on the weekends you'd be gone at you know 10 o'clock and came back at six o'clock and you'd you know could do you're eight years old and you're just running around everywhere but it was one of those things that you know dad worked dad came home mum didn't work mum 
watch soap operas and then food on the table and that was it. Mm. That was it. And so it was more of a case of me going, that's not where I'm meant to be. There's more. Mm. What more was I never knew. I knew I was creative. I didn't plan to have a business career as well as a creative career. Um, I sort of got directed in a few different ways, so I still went with the flow. But realising structure was so important, making sure that I had money um, because my parents weren't that great with it. They weren't frivolous. They just didn't know what to do with it. And so it was learning of what I didn't have that helped me understand what I wanted to have. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes, beautiful. What you didn't have informed what you did want to have. I think that's true for many of us. Mm. And many people may not be aware, Shana, that uh, more recently you have started, well, if anyone watched Celebrity Apprentice, they will know this, but if they haven't, that you've started your own charity or co-founded a charity, Voice of Change. And Voice of Change, as I understand it, is all about domestic violence. And of course, we know domestic violence is an umbrella term that covers many different behaviours from threatening to coercive to um, abusive behaviour. Anything, I think the definition suggests results in fear for the Mm. person who is uh, the the victim or the recipient of that behaviour. What was it about this very complex um, issue of domestic violence that felt like it was the place you wanted to to contribute to and leave some kind of legacy? Yeah, it's we sort of went a, a, a different way first because we made the movie first before the charity and the, the movie came about from emceeing a candlelight vigil for Safe Steps, which I'm quite sure you would have heard of. And my kids were sort of talking about a movie, wanting to make a movie, and there was a massive roll call um, right at the end. And I didn't really understand what that was going to be, but the roll call was the women and children that had been murdered that year with all their ages and names. It was so confronting. And then there was this group of MLC girls who were probably 15, 16, um, in their school uniforms with the candles, and I'm looking at them thinking, this could be you, mm. yeah. you in now, in five years, ten years, because abusive relationships, um, as you said, are coercive and you're sort of groomed and, you know, it can happen from a very young age of what you expect or what you don't expect and what you don't understand and all of a sudden in a re- abusive relationship with that, you're realising. Um, so it came down to seeing that roll call going, oh, I don't want to see this anymore. I don't want to see this. I want to end family and domestic violence. So it was a case of us sitting down as a family, my um, Carly and Jess and myself going, okay, I don't know how we're going to do it, um, but let's make let's make a movie. Let's make this movie and let's have our legacy of at least saving one person. Mm. So that's that was our motto the whole time. And then it just evolved into a, a, the big feature of what it is. Then it evolved into the charity of realising the, the power of the arts of, you know, when we were making the movie, people saying, you know, and it was different heads of, of young people in their late 20s up to people in their 40s going, you know, in different ways going, wow, that was my life. I've never told anyone that before. And then somebody going, I feel really naive because I didn't think this really happened. Mm. And then another person going, well, I feel really bad because I knew the house next door, something was going on and I could hear the fighting, but that's their problem. 
that's their issue. And that was where we realised the power of the arts started three incredible conversations about three different ways that we ignore, shove down and don't talk about family and domestic violence. And we treat it as someone else's problem when as a society it's our problem Mm -hmm. because by not doing anything, not saying anything, not being an active bystander really does mean that you're complicit. Yeah, the the stats are really confronting we know that one in four women have experienced physical or sexual violence by an intimate partner. In what ways in making the movie did you hope that that story would create impact? What do you hope the ripple effect is once people have seen that piece of work? Called The Fort. We haven't actually caught, we've been talking about The Voice of Change, but the, the movie's the, called The, the Fort. Fort. Yes. Um, conversations. And that's the biggest thing is that what I was saying before, people don't talk about it and people are afraid. And the great thing is that, you know, my son wrote it um, and there's four main characters, five main characters, and, you know, there's the perpetrator, which is the husband. There's Kitty, the victim, who's the mother of, you know, Tom, who's the child, and then there's the the grandfather or the father of Graham, who's the perpetrator, and then you've got Kitty's sister. And everybody can see some of themselves in any character and also understand that this is going on next door to you. If it's not going on next to you, it's the next three houses. This is happening. So as much as we have the fort as a little tent, as an escape for the fantasy world to take them away from the reality of the abuse, um, Tom, who's eight, is trying to save his mum and his mum is trying to save him. So there's all these complex um, characters in there that if something like that is happening with somebody, all you would need to say is, I'm Tom, and nothing else needs to be said. So all of a sudden people are aware. They don't have to go through, this happened to me, that happened to me. Or, you know, we've actually had a few people come out and go, you know what, I think I've got a bit of Graham in me. Mm. And and that's not just men, it's females too going, I think I need to check myself, you know, just those things that I say. And all of a sudden it becomes a real conversation rather than a scary conversation. And then, you know, we give tools at the end of the movie um, of just a few little conversations for you to then go, you know what, I think I can do this and I need to talk to somebody. And what our main thing also out of this movie is that we want those people to come out of the cinema and go, you know what, I want another 10 people to go see this and put on a screening. doesn't cost them to put on a screening, but it just means you invite people to go to a screening. So the more people that have a conversation to start another conversation, to start another conversation is the key to make change. Mm-hmm. And the arts is often perhaps underutilised as a, as a catalyst for conversation and as a driver for change. Yeah, and I think it's a safe space because it's character related, it's not on a soapbox and it's not finger pointing and I think that's the thing. If somebody is doing something wrong and they feel like they're being ostracised or they feel like that they're being pointed at, they won't engage. But if someone's watching that movie and they see these really horrible traits of coercive control that's in there, they could just sit there and go, shit, that's me, Mm. and maybe want to investigate it. But then on top of that, I I just have to say three people, and we've only done um, very minimal screenings. We haven't done a lot, but it's now going to be in the general public. Um, I've had three women contact me privately 
to thank us for bringing the awareness and they left their husband, they left an abusive relationship. So already we could have saved three women and their children. They've left their relationship after saying the fort? Yep. Wow. And, you know, they don't need to say anything of, of what that relationship was um, because a lot of people, as you said, Sabina, thinks it's all phys- physical. And so it, it's the coercive control is financial. It's, um, you know, people track you, people keep an eye on you. It's somebody that, you know, they've tried to call you and they ring four times and because you haven't picked up, all of a sudden you're in trouble. Mm. That's control. Mm. And mm. people don't think that's abuse and it actually is. Mm. So it's it's almost you've created a, a mirror, I suppose, that for some people um, they see a story reflected back that they didn't know they were living. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the really good part about it because it makes people question their actions. Mm. It makes people question their relationship. And that actually can be healthy because they could just go home to their partner and go, you know what? I saw a few things here and I'm not happy with that. Can we talk about it? And it actually encourages creative conversation but also comfortable conversation. If it's combative, no, of course not. Um, You have to really pick it. And, you know, we always say to people, never leap into a dangerous situation. All of a sudden people have access to a few tools that they can explore and go further and really have these real conversations to take it out from behind closed doors. Jess wrote The Fort and yep. Carly directed. They co- co-directed, co-directed together. Yes. Carly also um, edited. To have an intergenerational crew of a mother and a brother and a sister work together on creating something like The Fort is extraordinary. Uh, uh, what was it like to work together? It was. The, I was there as the EP and as supporting them. That that was the main thing that we were a pretty close family, especially you know them being uh, me being a single mum when they were really young. That communication was a really big thing for us. So we've always been very communicative, and uh, it was quite funny because. Uh, Carly had been living interstate overseas for a long time. So us as a family together hadn't been around too long because Carly had been away a lot. So we, Carly and Jess were very active in saying we have to set ground rules. We have to listen to each other. We have to respect each other. So there was a lot of times where, you know, one of us at some times was just biting our tongue but all in a good way because we actually gave each other room to breathe. But also from that the mother who was strict from the mother who just made sure everything was happening, I had to take a step back Mm. because it was their project Mm. essentially as creatives. I was there to support them. I was there to get it done. I was there to make sure what they needed they had. But it was up to them to be the bosses and it was up to them to make sure what they wanted um, happened. Let, Let the wildlings free. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so for people listening, where can they see the fort? How can they, uh, you know, create their own showing or, or where can they find out more information about the film? There's a website called Fanforce and they do lots of independence. If you think of Embrace, if you think of 2040, that's where they were all booked from. So we've done a couple of screenings. It can go anywhere in Australia. Um, you just work out the time, you work out where you want it and you make a booking and then you tell all your friends, say, hey, come and buy a ticket, buy a ticket, let's see it, let's have a chat, let's have an open conversation. Mm. It's actually quite simple to create this community feel. You know, it's in cinemas where there might be 40 people, there might be 200 people. We've actually had a lot of people add an extra $10 on it for fundraising. So we've actually had a a couple of um, women's shelters 
put on screenings and um, if you see them and they've, they've done a donation. Um, so it's up to you if you want to do it as a community, as a sports community. And um, we're having lots of inquiries from um, schools and colleges mm. too because these are conversations as adults because, as I said, these are 16-year-old girls um, that started, you know, that, that conscious decision of we have to do something. It can't be taboo for um, teenage girls and boys in their first relationships because, Honestly, this is a reality for some people. Well, it reminds me also of the consent, uh, you know, film that's just come out as well, or the series rather, um, yeah. where it is starting to open out those conversations and create language, I suppose, uh, uh, where we, we haven't, there's been silence or stigma and, and not a, a set of language models around what we need to understand around some of these really complex issues that so often sit in the shadows of our lives, maybe right next door. Yeah, and I think that's the thing also is the taboo has always been around the victim and the fact that it has been the victim shaming has been forever and it, it is the person that who's the victim that still gets told why didn't she leave give me a break have you ever been in a abusive relationship about coercive control about control people hold you financial instability and not only that the statistics are it's quite dangerous. She's more just in more danger leaving than what she is staying yeah. in there. Yes. One of our previous guests on this podcast, Tarang Trawler, uh, who, who, who's an advocate and, and does a lot of action around domestic violence education. Yeah, he, he's done he's done a lot of work around that. And that's right. And substantiated that the most dangerous time is is obviously when, when someone tries to leave an abusive relationship. Yeah. So with this film, is this the first of of a few, what, what do you hope to do beyond this? Obviously get screenings out there, get people seeing it, start those conversations. Have you got another project in the wings? We have, um, we're sort of, a couple of, I can't talk about because we're sort of trying to get funding for it at the moment. Um, we also are looking at short movies, but also looking at um, a few sort of interactive arts in, in music and also in um, sculpture and actual art, like painting and physical sort of painting. Have you got, you said at the end of the uh, film you've got some key tips because, you know, we're, we're traversing a lot of topics here, Shana. We're talking about prevention. We're talking about the arts. We're talking about your talented children creating a movie that's, that's really impactful and a catalyst for conversation. But on a practical level... What yeah. are some top tips that you have learned perhaps working with people like Safe Steps for those who may be either, you know, noticing some red flags in their relationship? They may not even have recognised it to this point as domestic violence, but something doesn't feel right. What do I do next? Look, I think the thing is with the red flags is that if you feel like, you know, um, what I was saying before about the phone, that you, you go out and if you don't pick up the phone, you get called about five times until you pick up. Then you get questioned where you are. That's control. That's not because they're love bombing you. Um, that's because they want to control you. And that's a big thing about love bombing. When somebody hurts you and does something really incredibly um, hurtful and then tries to make up with it by giving you flowers, by giving you lots of chocolates, giving you support, let's do this, and then all of a sudden that becomes a pattern. So it doesn't mean that if you have a fight you're not allowed to get flowers. doesn't mean you're not allowed to make up in, in anything. But if it's a pattern, mm. so it's one of those ones going, 
you know what, this is the third time in six months that this has happened mm. and I'm meant to feel good because I'm getting flowers. Mm. So, yeah, looking for patterns. Yes, is- so that, that's a really big thing. And then there's also the other part that um, what I was talking about being active bystanders. Mm. So the reason for putting a, a filmed panel at the end, when we did our screenings, our live screenings um, for testing, uh, we actually had live panellists in there talking about um, tools that you can do. So we went back and then we filmed a panel and have put that at the end of the movie so people can walk away with something. Mm. And one of the things Georgie Williams, who is the chair of UN Women Australia, she's in it, and is that uncomfortable conversation when somebody says something you're at a dining table you're at work and somebody says something a little bit derogatory or has a go at somebody and everybody sort of does that nervous laughter or somebody does that sort of I don't know what to do so I'm going to say nothing Mm. that's where you need to be active and just one of those great things that she said was like what do you mean by that and all of a sudden you stay silent and you let them explain it mm. rather than saying, you can't say that, that's not right, and all of a sudden it becomes combative. It is a case of like you need to say, what do you mean by that? And if they come back with something that's a little bit different than the same, you go, but what do you mean? Mm. And so you let them unpack it. Mm. And then more often than not they won't be able to explain themselves because they know what they, they mean and it becomes a different way and then you might see a different side of them um, and then if it becomes aggressive, then, of course, you diffuse and, and you pull back. But they're the sort of things that um, as an active bystander I think it's really important that we don't let people get away with those those conversations where we feel nervous, where we're actually scared to say anything because we we worry about how we're going to make everyone feel. And also that our safety is an issue. But if it's just a very simple thing of what do you mean is a very powerful sentence. Yeah, so these are tips as much for the person who may be in the domestic violence situation as a victim. These tips are for society at large to be able to challenge what we see and speak up when when we see something that that isn't okay. I know that um, Safe Steps on their website, they say family violence is not an inevitable social problem. It is preventable. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. And that's where we come from with Voice of Change is harm prevention. So harm prevention means to stop it before it starts. Um, you know, the, the national plan is about chain, about stopping family and domestic violence within this generation. And that was actually our thoughts before this came out, like when we did the movie. It's just like if we can stop family and domestic violence in 10 years, we, we've done what we've done. And in the end, it is society. Society has to change. We have to actually call people out. We have to not accept the, the, the behaviour that we let people get away with, you know, that when people are allowed to be abusive to people standing next to us, when they're abusive to somebody opposite it. But it's also if we allowed that to happen to the workplace, what are they taking home? But how are they going to treat the people behind closed doors? And also it's it's how we allow on the sports field of people being treated, you know, the, the inequality and the lack of respect. And when you respect somebody, you don't control them. And what we know about family and domestic violence is control. It's not about um, sex and it's not about love. It's about power and it's about control. And so when somebody respects somebody and when someone is respected, 
there's no control. The complexity is, of course, with pipeline, if you say you want to eradicate it, you know, in 10 years in the next generation, if we keep up with these education initiatives, if we call it out, if we continue to work at the coalface of where it's occurring and expose what's actually happening, um, I think that I understand that solutions focus. I suppose mm-hmm. the issue is the entrenched intergenerational patterns of power and control and abuse that we see and how we start to address some of those really... Um, indelible parts of people uh, who are older, who are not the next generation growing up, or or they are and they're being exposed to these patterns. Um, What are your thoughts on that? It's such a complex thing to try and get inside the onion, if you like, all the layers inside someone who may, may have that pattern entrenched. I think there's also that pattern of shame of people that are caught up in it is that no one's born bad. And it's intergenerational of something that has happened to them. So that it, they didn't, they weren't born an abusive person. They grew up and there was patterns and change that came to them that they repeated those patterns. So we have to have empathy for those people who have been a perpetrator and they need to get help. And they, you know, there's men's behavioral programs, you know, it doesn't mean that, oh, aren't you fantastic? You've been a horrible person and now you're going to have a program, you're going to get better. But they need to have avenues support because otherwise these people that are repeating these behaviours will never, ever come forward and will never make change. So it's really important that we don't make taboo of these programs. It's like someone goes in for drug rehabilitation, someone goes into Alcoholics Anonymous. Why can't we have people that have these intergenerational problems that cause violence, harm, go into these programs that are allowed to get better? And if you and I, I don't know the statistics, um, but we have spoken to a lot of people that have worked in jails and in behaviour programs in jails. That the amount of people that are in jail because of intergenerational trauma and violence is pretty high. And a lot of the time people have drug issues is because of the intergenerational trauma. And it depends what their trauma is as well. So that is a really big thing about rehabilitation, that we've got to allow people to be rehabilitated. Whether they can go into a relationship ever again, we don't know. There has to be some sort of empathy to allow this to happen so that person can stop doing it. And their children have a yeah. different experience and a different template. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very big, it's a very big issue. And I think what you've done beautifully, Shana, is you and Carly and Jesse have said, this is a piece of work that we put out there to invite conversation, to hold a mirror up to every one of us. We, mm. you, you know, three of you single-handedly won't be able to prevent uh, domestic violence, but if everyone comes to the table with that mindset, then nothing changes. So yeah. um, it, it, it is a powerful film. I have seen The Fort. I think it, it does hold a mirror up. And probably I think some of the more nuanced behaviour is what's thought-provoking because we all know when something looks, you know, a 10 out of 10 in the violent department, but these shades of grey and these moments, even a look, a tone, a conversation, uh, a decision, a choice that are underpinned by control is, I think, more prevalent than perhaps we realise. And there's no point in singing to the choir. Yeah. It's about um, talking to each and every one of us 
about what is okay and what is not okay and what help there is, I think, what help there is, which is what you've talked about and, as well. And speaking, part of it, speaking up, having language to speak up, um, particularly where you were saying, you know, what what do you mean by that? Or, or where your instinct says something doesn't feel right here, um, yes. then then that's, that's powerful, important to encourage people to learn the skills to be able to call that thing out. Mm. Uh, it might mean the difference between someone being in a situation uh, or not. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think we're really lucky that there's a... L- there is a movement and it's not, it can't be done just by the police. It can't be done by just the government. There's a lot being put in place. It's up to us to take those tools and do something with it yeah. because, you know, there's a lot of research of these incredible um, changes that need to happen, but you can't be forced to be changed. And, you know, if somebody tells you you have to do something, well, you're going to buck against it. So it is. that's where I'm saying it's up to society to take mm-hmm. these learnings, these tools and work with it. And it's got to be in the workplace. It's got to be in the schools. Mm-hmm. It's got to be in sports environments. It's got to be in community. And it's got to be in your everyday life, how you talk to each other as friends, as a family. And, Check yourself. I think that's the big thing. We're, we're all guilty of having a snarky moment. You know, I'm a bit of a smart aleck. My son's a smart. We're, we're all a bit of smart aleck and have like, and we think it's, you know, you get away with it. But sometimes you go, you know what? I think I went too far that mm. time. And the power of admitting that is pretty cool. Yeah. So that you can actually make that person feel better. But then you're also making yourself feel better going, you know what? I was a bit of a shitty person then and I don't want to be a shitty person and I'm really sorry. Can can we start again? Mm. And that's all it needs to take. Mm. And you know, that's that sense of you know, if you take away shame of your actions, it's going to fester. But by saying that out loud, you're taking the shame out of yourself. And I think that's really important. Well, it's an invitation to all of us because when we talk about society needing to do something, I think it's easy for us to say that's somebody else. But society yep. means each and every one of us. We are society, you and me and you, Mads, the three of us, we constitute society and everyone that's listening. So it's a call to action for every one of us, a good reminder. And for those who um, could uh, coordinate a showing or a screening for the fort through Fan uh, Force. Fanforce. Sorry, Fan Force. Yes, I, I have been to many screenings with Fanforce. Such a such a simple, such a simple concept and such an easy one for all of us to get involved in. So Shana, thank you. We do ask all our guests on Human Cogs uh, one final question. And mm-hmm. that is who do you think amongst the complexities of life that we've discussed in this episode and, and every episode of Human Cogs, who do you think is doing human well? I think kids. Kids have got the power of questioning. I sort of feel kids from sort of 10 up are the future because they are getting respect classes, they're talking about consent and they are checking, they're holding a mirror up to their parents. Mm. And so, you know, we always say children of the future, but I really feel that kids at the moment are our saviour. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Human Cogs. We hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you. And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do do human human well. well.